It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. First up, time to tell you about the latest from New Scientist Academy, We have a whole range of online courses, and the latest is Everyday Quantum Physics, a beginner's online course on quantum mechanics that teaches the principles that underpin modern physics and quantum computing. There's a special offer on now running up until the 13th of October, ahead of the course launch date on Thursday the 14th of October. The offer price is £149. That's a £100 saving off of the standard rate of £249. To get the discount, customers must enter the following coupon code POD3109, that's P-O-D 3109, on the registration form. For more information and to register, visit newscientist.com slash physics course. And remember that coupon code POD3109. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarche. On the show this week, we find out why leaves turn brown in autumn. <laughs> and we answer the burning question of why humans have no tails. I must know now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have New Scientist Features Editor Abby Beale on the show. Welcome, Abby. Hey. Abby's here to tell us that mini black holes might have been smashing into the moon and what that <sighs> might tell us about dark matter. Yeah, and I have some more news about getting water on the moon, you know, just in case you're thinking of going up there. Quite often thinking of going up there. (laughs) Um, All of that, and we're looking at what the new German government means for climate targets. And we've got some very cool news on gene editing. Uh, We haven't had a Christmas story in a while, so I'm very happy to have this. We're going to start with some breaking news. This week, the UK is passing law to make it easier to conduct trials of gene-edited food and eventually sell that food in the supermarket. Uh, You know, I've just thought this means people will literally be able to sell gene-edited pigs under the sign CRISPR bacon. (laughs) (laughs) I don't look forward to that, actually. Uh, What food is likely to be the first in the UK, then? Uh, So probably wheat for bread. Uh, Field trials of a CRISPR wheat have begun in the UK. And the idea here is is bread made from wheat that will have lower levels of acrylamide, which is a cancer-causing substance in in quite a lot of our food. Well, look, it's great that this is starting to happen and about time. Um, But the main thing we want to talk about is that actually tomatoes have already gone on sale now in Japan, CRISPR tomatoes. And our reporter, Michael LePage, had a story about this in the mag this week. 
Yeah, but this is big news. So crisper tomatoes have gone on sale in Japan. It's a kind of tomato called the Sicilian Rouge High Gabba tomato, really, really mm-hmm. snappy. Yeah. And it's the first time crisper food has been made commercially available anywhere. Um, so it's a big deal. Apparently, the demand in Japan is, isn't too bad. They're, the startups selling the tomatoes have given away seedlings to anyone who wants to grow the gene-edited tomatoes. And about 4,200 gardeners have accepted that and taken up the offer. Uh, So what does this new super tomato do? So the Sicilian Rouge High GABA tomato (laughs) produces less of an enzyme that breaks down the amino acid GABA, uh, gamma aminobutyric acid. And so that results in the tomatoes containing five times as much GABA as normal tomatoes. I was a bit surprised that this was the kind of the first target. Um, So GABA Mm. is this really essential um, uh, chemical in our bodies. It plays a role in the brain and the nervous system. And it is sold as a dietary supplement, but... The benefits of eating extra GABA aren't really sort of confirmed. They're they're still debated. Um, Mm. There was one review of the evidence last year that suggested taking GABA or increasing GABA intake may have a beneficial effect on stress and sleep. Um, But this isn't really conclusive yet. Yeah, you'd hope that on balance, they'd, they'd really be sure that GABA intake is really beneficial to go to the bother of, you know, making this edit, this gene edit, and then marketing and selling it all. But what's really great about this story is that it is very different to traditional genetic modification of plants and animals that we've seen in the past. And that has been really controversial, as you know, you know, with genetic modification, the problem, as many people have seen it, is that you take genes from one plant or animal and just basically paste it into a whole different species. And people have been really funny about that. But with gene editing, you just tweak an organism's existing DNA in a similar way to how it might anyway change through natural selection. Yeah, it's much more precise. And and that's why in some countries, um, foods produced using this method aren't subject to the same rules that um, other forms of genetically modified crops using older techniques for doing this are. So um, Japan gave the tomato the go ahead and the US Department of Agriculture have already confirmed that this tomato won't be regulated in the same way as conventionally GM crops when this tomato goes on to be launched in the US. And this is the key point, isn't it? Because we know how genetically modified crops and food have been basically regulated to death in the UK and in the EU. And that's really held it back. Yeah. And proponents of gene editing say the technology will have many benefits for consumers and the environment, farmers and farm animals. So, for example, cattle um, have been edited to make their coats lighter to help them cope with a warming climate. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out that we've been messing around with crop genes for a long time. In the 20th century, we used some really blunt tools for this, like just throwing radiation at plants and seeing if any of them got beneficial (laughs) mutations. Um, So CRISPR is a much less haphazard way of developing better crops. and, And it does come at this time when we're needing to adapt our food to the changing climate. Yeah, that's why we're quite fans of CRISPR. Um, And it's the first of many other CRISPR products that are being developed for for commercial sale. Also in Japan, they're looking at um, a sea bream, red sea bream, that's been gene edited to produce up to 50% more muscle. And according to the Yomiuri Shimbun, uh, the newspaper, the gene edited fish, those could be approved this month. story we're going to the moon Uh, so it's only right that we turn to our resident astronomer abby so what's going on with the moon at the moment 
<laughs> there's always something going on with the moon. Um, but specifically this week, there are a couple of things to talk about. We've got bizarre creators on the moon and how they might help us solve some mysteries. And some news about making water from regolith. That's the rock and dust on the surface. Yeah, that's really nasty stuff, isn't it? It's like really fine and it doesn't erode like dust does on Earth. So you get really sharp. It stays really sharp and it's going to cause real problems for people if they're on the moon and traipsing this moon dust back into their compounds and stuff. Yeah, it's caused health problems in all 12 people who've been on the moon. One astronaut even called it lunar hay fever, which I think sounds awful. I mean, I thought earth hay fever was bad enough um but this isn't about that this story is actually about getting water from it okay go on then yeah so some scientists have made a way to process moon rocks and so they extract water and oxygen from them um so that's like getting water out of stone how do you do that (laughs) yeah so about half the soil on the moon is actually made of silicon or iron oxides so these are rich in oxygen and you just need a way to get that oxygen out so that's what someone's done now the drawback is you need to make a furnace that reaches temperatures over 1000 degrees celsius right so that's probably quite tricky if you're on the moon yeah, I'm not sure how they would actually do that practically. <laughs> yeah. um, but if they can, that turns the lunar soil directly from a solid into a gas. And if you add hydrogen and methane, the gases react to produce water. From the water, you can extract the oxygen. Then after the oxygen has been extracted, there are three main substances left over, hydrogen and methane, which can be fed back into the furnace. And then you've got a metal rich dust that can be either left behind or processed further. So the metals can be used in other ways. The other cool thing about it is um, the researcher says it can be set up and left alone to run by moon explorers. So they don't need to be constantly monitoring it. Right. Tending the furnace. (laughs) It's nice. I guess it's nice to have those options, but it's probably going to be easier in the end to get hydrogen and oxygen from the water ice that's on the south pole of the moon yeah maybe there is definitely um ice on there so i guess like you said it is nice to have the option so what was the other big thing about the moon this week so this is a fascinating story um about one of the big mysteries in physics so that's the problem of dark matter This is the stuff that makes up 85% of the mass of the universe, but we haven't been able to detect at all what it is. There are loads of ideas about what dark matter might be, um, and one of these concerns primordial black holes. These are theoretical black holes that we think formed at the beginning of the universe, hence the primordial, and they've been hanging around ever since. The idea is that if these primordial black holes, which they can be really small, In this case, um, we're talking the size of an atom. If they've been around that long, the chances are one of them might have impacted on the surface of the moon and left craters. Wow. Yes, I was wondering what the link was going to be between a primordial black hole and the moon, but I did not expect (laughs) that. But wouldn't an impact from a black hole kind of just destroy the moon and not just leave a crater? No, because it's so small, it would pass through the moon um, without decelerating, but it would leave an impact and an exit crater, um, and those would look different to regular craters. Ah, so the things that we look at with our telescopes in our back gardens, you know, those lovely craters, a black hole crater is different from that kind of crater. Yeah, so firstly, they'd be really small, about a metre wide, which 
I'm sure a lot of the craters on the moon are that size, but those aren't the type that you would see from right, your yeah. tel- telescope or binoculars at yeah. home. And because the black holes don't decelerate, the impact transfers some velocity to the debris on the surface. So that makes a different shaped crater to something from a meteor or anything inside the solar system. It means the ejected material is more spread out and the crater would have steeper sides. And I guess even though we've examined the moon a lot, we haven't looked for craters like this yet or we haven't seen any like this? Yeah, that's right. So finding them is not so easy, um, but we do explain all about that in the mag this week. Mind-boggling. We'll post a link to that in our show notes. Time out. We've got a fantastic opportunity for fans of Professor Kip Thorne. He's the Nobel Laureate for Physics, also known for his advisory role in the film Interstellar and his appearance in Big Bang Theory. Yes, Kip Thorne is taking part in a discussion on Is Science the Solution to Everything? with Professor Brian Cox, organised by global cybersecurity company ESET, in association with the ESET Science Award. And you have a chance to ask Kip Thorne a question, which he will answer during the discussion. He's going to select the top five questions he wants to answer himself, and the top one will win $1,000, a free one-year licence for ESET Internet Security for a device of your choice, and a signed book by Professor Thorne, The Science of Interstellar. Follow ESET, that's E-S-E-T, ESET, after the Egyptian goddess of protection, don't you know? Mm, Follow ESET on their social media channels to find out how to enter. You've got until October the 5th to submit your question. Okay, now, with apologies to those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, this next segment is about autumn. Uh, specifically, it's about why leaves change colour in autumn. Has anyone ever thought about that? I actually have a tree that I can see from my window in my office, and every year it turns the most beautiful shade of sort of orangey yellow. Um, but I've never actually thought about why it does that. Yeah, so I'm pretty confident on this one, I think. Uh, so <laughs> deciduous plants draw in all their expensive photosynthetic green chlorophyll pigments before letting their leaves fall, but they leave behind the cheaper accessory pigments that are things like yellow and orange carotenoids, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's, uh, that is the classic explanation and it's partially correct. So the yellow colours in autumn leaves come about because these carotenoids are unmasked as the green chlorophyll disappears, as you say. But many trees um, have red leaves in autumn. Maybe some of the ones you can see, Abby, uh, have some red in them. And in that case, the pigment there is anthocyanin. And these pigments, they're actively produced in autumn. And anthocyanins are not involved in photosynthesis. And there's also some fluorescent compounds that are only made in autumn leaves. I didn't know that. And I hadn't thought about the anthocyanins. Um, So if the tree goes to the trouble and expense of of making these pigments only to throw them away soon afterwards when the leaf falls, there must be a good reason. Yeah. So one idea is that it seems to be a signal of some kind, just like uh, the peacock's tail is a signal to females of, you know, maybe the male's vigour and genetic quality. Yeah, so this is a classic example of an animal signal, isn't it? Um, The idea is that peacocks grow large tails because peahens can look at the tail and use that information to help them choose which is the fittest male to mate with. The thinking is that only healthy males are able to afford to grow expensive tails. Yeah, so the the big tail is an honest indicator. The big colourful tail is an honest indicator of the quality of the male. Uh, But no one had thought about this in plants until the legendary biologist Bill Hamilton did. Years ago, he first tested the idea that autumn leaves 
function as a signal. Um, to what though? So to predators. So the, the bright autumn colours, that's the tree's way of saying to insects, to pests, I'm strong enough to resist you and you <laughs> might as well just go away and feed on another tree. So a bit like when gazelles start in front of a cheetah, it's a bit of a acrobatic display to say, I'm fit, go pick on someone else. Exactly. So to test this original hypothesis, Hamilton and his colleague Sam Brown originally went away and looked at 262 tree species and scored them according to the degree of colour change they underwent in autumn. And then they looked at the number of different aphid species that were associated with each tree. So, you know, many insects attack trees, but aphid damage is particularly intense. And they found that the tree species that were host to the most species of aphids were the ones that had the brightest autumnal colours. Um, in other words, the tree species that over evolutionary time had the most to lose from insects, they advertised their resistance the strongest. Yes, this is making me think of my beloved Japanese maple in the garden. Yes, um, and in Canada, of course, very famous for the bright red maples. And they're, they're renowned for having some of the real spectacular autumn display colours. And they are also some of the most heavily aphid-infected trees. I have to say, I'm, I'm not fully convinced, um, because <laughs> why would trees only use the signal in autumn, which isn't particularly an active time for aphids? And also, aphids are tiny and short-lived, so you can't really expect them to remember the signal into the following year. I wonder if the trees that have made the most sugar are both more attractive to aphids and more able to produce these red anthocyanins for some other reason, like anthocyanins they're powerful antioxidants, aren't they, at times of stress? So there might be something in that. Yeah, there, there probably is. Um, I mean, the idea was really controversial at first. Um, and I think, you know, most people still don't, most biologists still don't really appreciate it. But there's been a lot more evidence since that first paper by Hamilton. And one really nice piece of evidence from domestic fruit trees shows that varieties of apple tree that are more susceptible to the damage produced by insects, they're the ones with the red autumn leaves, and that's what the theory predicts. I love this idea. I'm going to go and have a look at the tree outside my window and look for aphids now. <laughs> Good. It's so interesting. I, I will just say, though, nothing straightforward in evolution. The peacock's tail, it's not definitely a sign of health and vigour. An alternative, and I think very credible theory, is that it's just beautiful and females like it. <laughs> Now, having tackled the mystery of the autumn leaves, we turn to another evolutionary puzzle. This one a bit closer to home. Yeah, yeah, this is great. This is about why we don't have tails. And the research started when a geneticist had a car accident and damaged his coccyx. Ouch, his tailbone. Yeah, the, the remnant tailbone at the end of the spine. Uh, the researcher Bo Shea at New York University said he'd always wondered when he was a child, why people didn't have tails like other animals. And then he hurt his coccyx and then he started investigating the genetics of tail loss. So the story here is that Shia reasoned that any mutations involved in tail loss should be present in apes, but not monkeys. He and his colleagues compared ape and monkey versions of 31 genes known to be involved in tail development. They found nothing in the protein coding regions. So that's the, the bits of genes that directly code for proteins. 
So they also looked in other bits of DNA um, around the genes and in the genes um, that don't directly make bits of protein. So if you think of proteins as flat pack furniture, the (laughs) genetic instruction booklets for making them come with lots of pages of of gibberish or that we think are gibberish that you basically have to skip through so that the instructions make sense. Yeah, I I find with flat pack furniture, well, maybe it's me that's reading gibberish, but yeah, I can't make them work a lot very well. Yeah, I I think perhaps we're being a bit unfair to DNA here. Um, It makes a lot more sense than some of the instruction (laughs) booklets I've seen. But but anyway, these extra bits of DNA, um, when they're inside genes, they're called introns. And when genes are copied into mRNA so that you can then make proteins, part of that process cuts these introns out. But what Shia found is that in the ancestor of apes, in a tail gene called TBXT, an alu element landed smack bang in the middle of an intron. So alu elements are genetic parasites. They're these bits of DNA code that just copy and paste themselves all over the genome. Yeah, these are amazingly weird and interesting things. Um, But they don't normally do anything, do they? Do they? They just come along for the ride, repeating themselves and copying themselves along. Yeah, but when they sort of jump around and insert themselves in places in the genome, they can have some, uh, you know, unintended, interesting consequences. Um, So normally an alu and an intron probably wouldn't make much difference. But in this case, uh, there happens to be another alu element nearby, uh, sort of back to front. And because these two sequences are complementary and relatively close to each other, they can sort of find each other and bind together in a way that forms a loop in the mRNA between them uh, when when they get copied into mRNA from our original DNA instructions. So what that does is it effectively glues several pages of the instruction booklet together, meaning that when the extra pages, the gibberish introns are cut out, some of the useful instructions are often lost too. And this means the assembled furniture, the TBXT protein, often has a key piece missing. Wow. I I love it how you've put it like that, that it glues the pages together. I kind of understand it now. Yeah. So the team did several experiments to test the effects of this. So for instance, they showed that mice with this mutation produce a mixture of TBXT protein. So some of them still turn out to be full length, uh, but some of them are missing a bit um, like apes do. And this usually resulted in complete tail loss among those mice. That is amazing. I mean, so tails didn't gradually fizzle away. They basically just disappeared overnight. Tails must have had a really low value to those our ape ancestors if it didn't matter that they could just disappear and they got on fine without them. Yeah, and this is one of the things I find most interesting about evolution is the extent to which uh, things are naturally selected. So that something crops up and it's really positive and nature selects for it. Or or the extent to which things just kind of disappear and no one misses them and they just drift away. Um, What this finding can't tell us is is why our ancestors lost their tails. So there are proposed explanations for this, of course. Um, One idea is that when apes started moving in different ways, like walking upright, uh, perhaps the tails got in the way and, and weren't very useful. But fossils suggest that the first tailless apes uh, walked on all fours. So um, that's not necessarily the right explanation. But one thing that's really interesting here is that the researchers think that this mutation, when it occurred, so when uh, apes started not having tails, it must have conferred a strong advantage because there is also a downside, it seems, to to this mutation. So they found in the mice, in their experiments, um, some of them developed spinal abnormalities resembling spina bifida. 
And the team speculate that perhaps the relatively high rate of spina bifida in people could be a lingering relic of when our ape ancestors lost their tails 25 million years ago. Wow, two amazing evolution stories this week. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Can I just do blah, blah, blah for the rest of the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That, of course, was Greta Thunberg uh, this week speaking at the Youth for Climate Pre-COP26 meeting in Milan. And we put that there because we're going to talk about climate politics now. And I think it's good to have basically blah, blah, blah in mind when we talk about pledges for action. But Penny, governments have been doing some good things, haven't they? And there might be more to come. And the big news this week, of course, is in Germany, the election with Angela Merkel is about to step down after 16 years. What is this going to mean for the environment? Well, hopefully it's good news. Um, So we're we're still waiting to see which coalition will form a government. But it was the Social Democratic Party that got the largest share of the vote. And the SPD's candidate for the top job, Olaf Scholz, he's pitched himself as a climate chancellor during his election campaign. Um, And also the Green Party uh, won a record share of the vote and they look likely to form part of his coalition. So was this a climate election for Germany? Yeah, yes. So Martin Kaiser at Greenpeace Germany told our reporter Adam Vaughan this week that climate change was one of the top two issues at the centre of the election campaign this time. The economy was the other, obviously. It's Mm. always the economy. Um, And we saw every party except uh, the far right commit to the goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees as, as part of their campaigns. So we can expect action and not blah, blah, blah? Yes, um, uh, we hope so. Um, It depends on how the coalition talks shake out. Um, That will determine exactly what kind of action. Um, So, for example, the Greens want to ban new petrol and diesel car sales by 2030. But the Free Democratic Party, which is also likely to be part of the coalition, they only want to see climate change tackled using carbon pricing. But I'd say that one big thing to look out for is some ambition on expanding renewables. Um, Annual growth in renewable capacity has stagnated in Germany in recent years. And and you have to remember that Germany still uses a lot of coal. 16 years is a long time to be in charge. So Merkel was chancellor back when Japan's Fukushima nuclear disaster prompted Germany to decide to phase out its nuclear power plants back in 2011. And as these have been phased out since then, coal has provided much of the shortfall. So it's time to change that. Hopefully, yes. Um, so it's 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 a relatively slow political process. Uh, the new government isn't expected to take shape until Christmas or later. Mm. Um, but there is a hope that the incoming leaders could tell the current government that they'd like to support a global coal phase-out statement that the UK is preparing for COP26 in a month's time. And closer to home for us, it's conference season here in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, so this week was the Labour Party conference and a few things caught my eye. Um, in a manner a bit similar to Schultz, the shadow chancellor Rachel Reeves said she wants to be the UK's first green chancellor. Um, so Labour is pledging to spend £28 billion every year on green capital investments until 2030, which is the equivalent of about half the defence budget. That's amazing, actually. Uh, that would be great. And I like thinking about spending money on green investments. But what would they spend it on? 
Yeah, various things have been mentioned. Um, electric vehicle battery factories, uh, making <laughs> offshore wind turbines. But for me, the most eye-catching is home insulation. Um, you know, we're in the middle of this UK gas crisis. It's also the time of year where we all start turning on our heating. And in his speech on Wednesday, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, uh, pledged to insulate all the homes that need it in the next decade. I'm just excited to see insulation, which is really (laughs) unsexy, but so essential for reducing emissions. It's making headlines. And lastly, uh, one last thing to flag while we're on climate politics. Um, The UK isn't the only country facing an energy crisis right now. China is obviously a crucial nation to watch when it comes to COP26. And it's been a a mixed week or two. Last week, President Xi Jinping announced that China would stop funding coal-fired power projects in developing nations, which would be great, although there wasn't a date attached to this promise. But China is experiencing an electricity shortage right now due to provinces struggling to meet targets on emissions cuts. And also because China has struggled to source enough coal since it cut back on its imports from Australia. Um, So globally, it's a really uh, tense, quite fast moving time as we head into COP26 in, in just over a month's time. That's all for this week. Uh, thanks, Abby, for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, go to newscientist.com slash physics course to learn about our new New Scientist Academy courses. And remember that coupon code POD3109. Spread the word, tell your friends, and yeah. we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.